journey through the Psalms, we've been reminding ourselves each week what the Psalms are all about. The Psalms are, uh, in actuality, 150 hymns. They were written to be used in the corporate worship uh, among the people of Israel. Uh, but they do have a common theme uh, that we see throughout these Psalms. And this quote comes from Dr. Kendall Easley where he highlights the theme. He writes, God, speaking of the theme of Psalms, the true and glorious King is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. So each of the Psalms remind us over and 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 over again that no matter what you're going through in life, God is worthy of your praise and God is worthy of your trust. So if you're on the mountaintop, praise the Lord. Trust the Lord. If you're in the valley, praise the Lord. Trust the Lord. And we're reminded of that over and over again in the Psalms. John Piper, speaking of these being hymns, says, The Psalms are songs. They are poems. They are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. And that probably gets to the root of why the Psalms are so well-loved. They're well-loved because they are emotional. We connect with them. We resonate with the, the different emotions we see the psalmists bringing to the Lord. And so we love the Psalms. We connect with the Psalms. And this 89th Psalm is about the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God. So look there with me, Psalm 89. Notice the small letters there, a mascal, which is a uh, musical term, a mascal of Ethan the Ezraite. We don't know a lot about Ethan the Ezraite. Uh, there's speculation as to who he is. Uh, some people believe he's the Ethan mentioned. Uh, as a wise man during the reign of Solomon. I don't believe the timeline fits because I believe the timeline of what's being discussed here in Psalm 89 came after the days of Solomon. And so uh, I think Ethan is just uh, a, a guy that wrote this down and it got included in the Psalms. We don't know much about uh, Ethan, the uh, Ezra height, uh, but he did write this, uh, this hymn. So it's interesting to, to note uh, notice there in verse 1, I will sing of the steadfast love, uh, the Hebrew word there is kesed, we'll talk some more about that in a moment. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your, what's the word there? Faithfulness to all generations. For I said steadfast love will be built up forever in the heavens. You will establish your, what's the word? Faithfulness. So we see in the first two verses the, the theme uh, in this psalm, and it, and it continues to surface throughout the 52 verses. So, uh, we've seen that Ethan the Ezraite wrote this psalm. Don't know a whole lot about Ethan the Ezraite, uh, but I want to give you what I believe is the context of this psalm. Uh, in this psalm, the Davidic covenant is mentioned, and we'll talk a lot about the covenant that God made with David and what that covenant uh, was all about the stipulations of that covenant, uh, the end game of that covenant. But we'll see here that the psalmist uh, was looking at a situation uh, in the nation of Israel in which it seems like God had forgotten the covenant. And uh, the covenant basically said, uh, the Lord said to David, there's going to be someone 
uh, on uh, the throne from your descendants that will rule forever and ever and ever. And so the covenant seemed to indicate that there would be a descendant of David always ruling. Well, when the Babylonians came into Israel as an instrument of judgment against God's people, they overthrew Jerusalem. They took a lot of the Israelites into captivity. It's called the Babylonian exile or the Babylonian captivity. They destroyed the temple and, and other places there in Jerusalem and Judea. And after they came into uh, that area, they took the, the king with them back into captivity. And there was no descendant of David ruling. And so the psalmist is saying, okay, what's going on here? You, you, you made a covenant with David about your descendants ruling. We don't see a descendant of David ruling. So what's the deal? All right. And so I believe that, that context fits best with the Babylonian exile, which is why I believe Ethan wasn't a contemporary of Solomon. He came later on. So what I want to do is I want to uh, just look at God's faithfulness together under three headings, or I've called them three refrains. There are three refrains we see uh, in this hymn. As we look at these three refrains, we'll kind of unpack uh, what a, a lot of what I just talked about and, uh, and go from there. So here's the first refrain in this hymn. It's great is your faithfulness. And put an R on the end of Y-O-U there. It's a misprint on my, that's my bad on that one. And I, I, I just hate it when I do that. But it's great is your faithfulness, not, not great is you faithfulness, all right? Great is your faithfulness. That's the first refrain in this hymn. That, that surfaces over and over again in this hymn. Uh, and, and we see that if God's faithfulness is on display, and it is because it's mentioned in verse 1, verse 2, verse 5, verse 8, verse 14, verse 33, and verse 49. It's all throughout this psalm. If God's faithfulness is on display, if it is the, the, the centerpiece of the psalm, if, if it is the topic of conversation, then God's people should respond to his, that attribute. And how should God's people respond to the faithfulness of God? First of all, recognize His faithfulness. That's what the psalmist is doing here. He's recognizing the faithfulness of God. And he, he mentions three aspects of God's faithfulness. First of all, his faithful love. I will sing, verse 1, of the steadfast love. Now that phrase, steadfast love, is the translation of one Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is kesed. And it's translated so many different ways throughout the Old Testament, throughout different translations. It's almost like we don't know how to take that word and put it into English. Because that word, kesed, is such a beautiful word. It is a, a, an all-encompassing word. It, it, it's, almost, it's a word that really kind of entails love. So you see the love there. And then this steadfastness or this unfailing aspect of love. In other words, God's love never runs out, it, 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 it never comes to an end, he, he always comes through in his love, you can count on his love, and so I think steadfast love is a good translation here, but it also cares with the idea of grace, and, and then kind of, in some uh, verses, the idea of mercy as well, uh, I mean, there's so much in this word, and so we don't even know what to do with it, we, we really need about four or five English words to get the heart of this Hebrew word, uh, but I would say this word is probably the Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament word grace. Okay, that'd be the, the, kind of the best way to explain this. And so God's grace, God's mercy, God's love are all caught up in this, uh, in this word. So he says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. 
With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. So we see here a connection between God's love and God's faithfulness. Your love is steadfast. It does not end. It will not come to an end. And I will keep singing of it forever because you are faithful. You will continue to love uh, me forever. And by the way, isn't it good news that God's love is something we can count on? You know, God is, God is not capricious. In other words, uh, he, he doesn't change with every uh, wind. He, he, he's, he doesn't uh, change his mind. He doesn't change his nature, his attributes. He, he is uh, immutable. And because he's immutable, his love, which is who he is, uh, is something we can always count on. And so we need to recognize his faithful love, his faithful love. Secondly, we need to recognize his faithful rule. His faithful rule. Now fast forward down with me to verse 8. I want to show you three areas in which God rules. Verse 8 he says, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around. So notice he connects the faithfulness of God. And by the way, the word faithfulness basically just means God always comes through. You can count on him. Okay? Amen? Isn't that good news? You can count on him. So he's, he connects his faithfulness to his rule. All right, We see three areas in the psalm that God rules. First of all, God rules the created order. Verse 8, it says, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. So it speaks of God's might, God's strength. Then it says in verse 9, You rule the raging of the sea when its waves rise. You still them. Now, out of all the created order, it's interesting that the psalmist here, Ethan, mentions the sea. I mean, he could have mentioned any part of the creation, but he mentions the sea. Why? The sea in Hebrew thought was a picture of the, the tumultuous world in which we live. And it's used in that other place in Scripture. In other words, this world is like a raging sea, isn't it? I mean, it, it, is, it is unsteady, it is uncertain, it is dangerous, and that's the idea of the sea here. So when he says here that, that God in his faithfulness and his might rules over the sea, saying God rules over the created order, all of it. As unstable as it is, as uncertain as it is, as dangerous and scary as it can be, God rules over it all. Uh, I remember one July 4th weekend, uh, this is when uh, I was in uh, high school, maybe college, and uh, Claire and I, we weren't married yet, but we went down to the, the coastline there in Taylor County where I'm from to go uh, meet up with my parents. My parents were in there for a church, uh, a church fellowship right there at somebody's house there on the coast. And we, we, Claire and I arrived. We, we weren't there earlier. They were going to go out fishing and scalloping. Uh, so we got there a little bit later. We had some other event. And so we showed up, and my mom and dad were white. I mean, just pale like ghosts. And I said, what happened? I mean, I could, they were shaking. I said, what happened? Well, they had gone out with a few of their boats uh, on, the, on the, the flats there on the, the Gulf Coast, and they were scalloping. Uh, which you, you kind of snorkel around, and there's scallops on the bottom, and you pick them up off the bottom, and you go back and clean them and cook them and eat them. It's wonderful, all right? But I digress. They, but they, they were scalloping, and uh, they found themselves in a storm. There was a storm that came from the land uh, toward the sea, so it got between them and land. That's dangerous when that storm comes from the land. It got between them and the land, and so they began to try to head back, and they got caught in the middle of the storm. It was raining hard. It was pelting their faces. They were, they, it was raining so hard, uh, and waves were so high, they were bailing water out of the boat. My dad's bilge pump wasn't, wasn't enough, uh, 
And uh, they had a, a, a kid in the church, a friend uh, with them, and he, they made him put on life preservers. They all put on life preservers. And Dad said, for a minute, I, I just wasn't sure we were going to make it. And uh, the only thing that worked is he had a compass on his boat, and he followed the compass because he said, if I, if I stay in this, this uh, you know, easterly direction, I know I'll hit land eventually. And they made it back to land because of the compass because they couldn't see anything. They'd lost all visibility. And, and it said it was just like that. They're out there. They were scalloping, they were snorkeling, uh, sun was shining, everything was great. And just like that, the sea turned into uh, a potentially uh, deadly situation. And that's the idea here, that the sea rages and it is scary, and, and yet God rules over the sea, his faithful rule. He rules the created order. Now, I, I saw this in my own personal time with the Lord recently as I was reading through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, I was reading about Jesus, who's God in human flesh. Jesus left heaven and came to earth taking on humanity. So Jesus is God. And, and, and we see this take place when he's on the boat in the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. And uh, wind and, and, uh, comes and the waves rise up. And in a very similar situation, my parents, uh, the, the boat is being swamped. And the disciples are scared. So they go to find Jesus. Remember what Jesus was doing? He was asleep. He was asleep. And, and they say, don't you care that we're perishing? Wake up. And, and Jesus stands up in the boat and he says, peace be still. And immediately the waves die down. The wind dies down. Why? He's God. And he speaks uh, with authority over creation itself. Isn't that incredible? And that, that's, that's power, isn't it? That he has the, the power to, to, to calm the stormy sea. And by the way, if your life feels like a stormy sea, God has power over it. And just like he can say, peace be still to the stormy sea, he can say, peace be still to the storms in your life, right? That's, that's good news. And, and so he, he's faithful to, to rule over the created order. Secondly, he's faithful to rule human history. Look in verse 10. He says, you crushed Rahab like a carcass. Now, Rahab is a name for Egypt. Uh, it's just a, a word that was given to Egypt. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. And so he's speaking here of God's uh, defeat of Israel's enemies and how God showed his power over them. And this is a reminder that God was over the kings, over the nations. You know, in this day and time, Egypt would have been known as the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. They're mighty empires. And, and, and he's saying, you, you crushed Rahab. You, you defeated uh, Rahab. Uh, you scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. And so God rules human history. And you need to understand that when it looks like the world is spinning out of control, listen to me, it's never beyond God's control. Charles Spurgeon said, there's not a rogue molecule in the universe. And, and even though from our perspective it looks topsy-turvy and it looks confusing and, and we don't know where it's all headed, God knows exactly where it's headed because he's in control of it all. And, and when the dust of human history settles, we're going to see God's wisdom and God's power and how he used it all for his ultimate glory. Right? Only, only a mighty, all-powerful God can do that. And that's, that's what God does. He rules human history. And then third, he rules the universe. Look in verse 11. He says, the heavens are yours, the earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have 
founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness. There it is again. Go before you. So what's it saying? It's saying God rules the universe. Now here's a question. Why does God rule the universe? Answer, because God made it all. And the creator calls the shots. So, so God rules, he says here, the heavens and the earth. God's in control of everything. He rules the universe. And so it speaks of his faithful rule. He's a, he's a God of faithful love. He's a God of faithful rule. You can trust him with the way that he oversees human history and the way he oversees your life. But there's another aspect of his faithfulness here. His faithful love, his faithful rule, his faithful covenant. His faithful covenant. Look in verse 19. He says, Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I've granted help to one who is mighty. I've exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant with my holy oil. I've anointed him so my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. So he's speaking here of David, and he's speaking of the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where he said, David, I'm going to establish your kingdom. I'm going to give you descendants who will rule on the throne that you are ruling on now, and, and your kingdom will last forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That was the covenant that God made with David. Now, James Montgomery Boyce um, looks at this psalm and he mentions ways that God fulfilled this covenant or, or what he did in David's life to, to, to bring this covenant about and to, um, to keep his side of that covenant. Uh, just look at those with me quickly. First of all, God chose David. Verse 19 and 20, I found David my servant. With my holy oil I've anointed him. Number two, God strengthened David. Verse 21, so my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. Number three, God protected David. Verse 22, the enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. Number four, God gave David victory. Verse 23, I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. Number five, God exalted David. Verse 24, my faithfulness and my steadfast love. There's faithfulness again. My steadfast love shall be with him. In my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my father, my God, my, the rock of my salvation. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So God exalted David and gave him a place of preeminence and prominence. And then God blessed David's descendants. Look in verse 28. He says, My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. My covenant will stand, for, uh, stand firm for him. I will establish, going back to 2 Samuel 7, I will establish his offspring forever in his throne as the days of the heavens. So he's mentioning here God blessing David's descendants. And so James Montgomery Boy says this, God found David, and you remember what he called David? A man after God's own heart. And he chose him to succeed Saul who blew it as the king, the first king of Israel. He took Saul off the throne, put David uh, on the throne as king of Israel, and did all these things in his life. He chose him, he strengthened him, he protected him, he gave him victory, he exalted him, and he, and he promised to bless David's descendants. And so this speaks of God's faithful covenant with David. I'm going to make you king, and I'm going to give you descendants who will reign forever. Now, how's that covenant fulfilled? Well, we'll get to that in a few moments. 
Uh, but we see here that God is faithful in covenant. So, first refrain of the hymn, great is your faithfulness. We, we recognize his faithfulness, right? We recognize that God is a faithful God. We, we sing the song, great is thy faithfulness. You know, we should recognize that God is a faithful God. But, but we should praise his faithfulness. We should praise his faithfulness. Look in verse 1. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Look in verse 5. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the Holy Ones. So, Lord, I pray that, that, that when your people get together, they will make much of your faithfulness. They will rejoice and exult in your faithfulness. Uh, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones, and awesome of, above all who are around him? So here's what he's saying. God is faithful. He deserves praise. He, he deserves exaltation. He deserves uh, singing. He deserves worship because he is faithful. Answer in that question, verse 6, who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? The answer is no one. No one else is worthy of worship like God is because God is the only one who is always and forever faithful. So we should praise His faithfulness. And by the way, just the quick aside, I'm trying not to get off on a little hobby horse here, but let me just make a comment here. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord. Now, who wrote it? Who wrote this song? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who wrote it? Who wrote it? Not a trick question. Ethan wrote it, right? So he was a man. Okay, Ethan's a man's name. And notice he mentions singing. Now, I don't know why this is. All right? And I've been meaning to say something about this. Um, a lot of men in, in churches struggle with singing. And listen, if, if you are redeemed... If you know Jesus, if your sins have been washed away, there ought to be a song in your heart. And, 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 and you ought to just open up. And I'm not saying it's going to sound good, but I, because but I, I, I know mine doesn't sound good, but I, I'm just telling you that, that men should be leaders in their home and in their church. And, and one of the ways we can lead is by exhibiting faithfulness to sing praises to God. He's worthy of it, right? He, he's worthy of it. I've told you my story before, but I was, uh, I was a little boy. I don't know, I was probably six, seven years old, and we were in church one Sunday, and I was singing out. You know, we had the Baptist hymn while I was singing out. I said, you sound awful. <laughs> and so, you know what I did? This is, not a, this is not an exaggeration. I closed my hymn book, and I put it down and didn't sing till I was 18. Didn't sing another line. He's right. I would just, song would be playing. I would just stand there like this respectfully. Stand there and, and I listen to everybody. But I, I didn't sing until one Sunday I was, I was sitting there in the pew and my pastor was preaching and he said something very similar to what I just said to you. That, hey, if you've been saved, you should sing. He's worthy of your praise. And the Lord used that in my life to say, you know, I need to be singing. And, and so from then on, I ain't saying it sounds good, all right? But I sing. I, I, I sing. If, if you pass me at the right moment in my truck and I'm looking weird, and I'm by myself because I'm singing, right? I may have my hand up. I may, you know, I may be bobbing my head. I, but but I, listen, I love 
to, to, to sing because he's worthy of it, right? And, and so if there's a, a pride thing there that keeps you from singing, put, lay that down and, and, and sing. God, the reason we have music, music is because God gave it to us, right? So sing, sing praises to him. Um, and, and so Ethan here sings, I will sing of the steadfast love. We should praise his faithfulness. By the way, I tell that story about my brother, and he says, he says, wait, you make me the villain. He said, if I ever show up at your church, you're going to think, there's that guy, there's that, there's that brother, older brother. My brother loves the Lord now. He's great. You know, he, he, would, he would say that he shouldn't have said that. So don't, don't think ill of Jeff, all right, if he ever comes. All right. And he's been here before, by the way. So praise his faithfulness. So number one, first refrain of the hymn, great is your faithfulness. So that's the, the, the gist of what he's saying. God, your faithfulness is great. Now, here's the second part or second refrain of this hymn. Great is man's unfaithfulness. There's a contrast here between the perfection of God who never lets you down and the imperfection of man who always lets God down. All right? Who, who, who's prone to let God down. Look in verse 30. Notice the contrast. It's real interesting how the, the psalm turns starting in verse 30. He says, If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes, talking about the children of David, and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod, their iniquity with stripes, but I will not remove my, from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. Here's what he's saying here. Uh, I'm going to bless David's descendants, but if and when they blow it, and they did, all right, it, it, I'm going to, I'm going to, there are going to be consequences for their sin. So he mentions the unfaithfulness of David's sons, uh, and he contrasts it with God's perfect faithfulness. And before we start talking about the sins of Solomon and other of others of uh, David's descendants, uh, we need to realize that we all fall short of the standard of faithfulness, right? God is always faithful. We are uh, guilty of faithlessness. Uh, we are guilty of, of not doing what God's told us to do or, not, uh, or doing what God's told us not to do. We, we've all fallen short of the standard of faithfulness, just like David's sons. So listen, when you read the Old Testament, all right, uh, you see a lot of stories about people blowing it. And, and we, we should be disappointed by that, but we should realize before we throw them under the bus... We've blown it too, right? And so, we all fall short of the standard of faithfulness. But here's the good news. Our unfaithfulness never affects God's faithfulness. Look, look what he says there uh, in verse 33. He says, I'll punish them, verse 32, uh, iniquity with, with stripes, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. So even though they're going to be faithless, I will remain faithful. I'll, I'll keep my end of the deal. I'll keep my end of the covenant. That's what he's saying here. And when I studied that, it, it reminded me of 2 Timothy uh, 2.13 that says, even we are faithless, God is faithful. So our, our unfaithfulness never invalidates God's faithfulness. He, he never changes character. He will always be faithful. Listen to this quote from A.W. Pink. It's an extended quote, but it's really good. Unfaithfulness is one of the most outstanding sins of these evil days. And by the way, he wrote this in the early 20th century, but it sounds like it was written yesterday. In the business world, a man's word is, with rare exceptions, no longer his bond. In the social world, the marital infidelity abounds on every hand. 
In the ecclesiastical realm, thousands who have solemnly covenanted, that's the church realm, thousands who have solemnly covenanted to preach the truth have no scruples about attacking and denying it. Nor can reader or writer claim complete immunity from this fearful sin. How refreshing then and how blessed, listen to this, to lift our eyes above this scene of ruin and behold one who is faithful, faithful in all things at all times. So you see the contrast there? We're faithless, God is faithful. And that's really good news for faithless people because faithless people need a Savior who will come through on His saving. We need a, a faithful Savior, right? And so the second refrain is, uh, great is man's unfaithfulness, which brings us to the third refrain, and we'll be finished. Great is your faithfulness, that's the first part, number two. Great is man's unfaithfulness, number three. The psalmist says, in effect, where is your faithfulness? Talking to God. Great is your faithfulness, but then he says, where's your faithfulness? Because look what he says in verse 38. But now, so let me, let, let's, let's bring it back up to speed. God, you promised to bless David. You promised to bless his descendants. You promised that, that his throne would last forever. But now, look in verse 38. You have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. There's no king ruling right now. There's no Davidic king on the throne. So God, have you forgotten your covenant? I know you're faithful. Why does it look like you're being unfaithful? That's what he's saying here. Keep reading. He says, You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. The psalmist goes from singing, Great is thy faithfulness, to where is your faithfulness? Now, here's what we need to learn from this. From the psalmist's limited perspective, and hey, come in real close, our perspective is always limited because we're not God. From the psalmist's limited perspective, it seemed like God was being unfaithful. It seemed like God was not keeping his end of the deal. It seemed like God was not following through on the covenant that he made with David from his limited perspective. But here's what you need to do when your perspective is limited and you begin to question the faithfulness of God. Remember, the Lord is faithful even when you can't see Him at work. So what the psalmist is doing here, he gets back to this clinging to God's faithfulness. Look what he says uh, in verse 42. You've exalted the right hand of His foes, talking about the foes of, of David's descendants. You've made all His enemies rejoice. You've also turned back the edge of His sword. You've not made Him stand in battle. You've made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You've cut short the days of his youth. You've covered him with shame. Selah. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? In other words, the psalmist is saying, I can't see you. Listen, have you ever been in a situation in life that's so difficult? You're thinking, God, I can't see you in this. I can't see you. I don't know what's happening. I can't see you. That's what he's saying. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Selah. So the psalmist here is saying, and this is, I love this, it's almost comical. He's saying, Lord, I'm not going to live forever, so I would love to see you come through on this one. 
Now, we understand that, don't we? We want to see God work on our timeline, right? It's like, God, help and hurry, right? And that's what the psalmist here is saying. So the psalmist can't see God, but look how he closes the psalm. Look at the last verse. Verse 52, blessed be the Lord forever, amen and amen. So he's confused, his perspective is limited, he can't see God, he wonders how long, he, he wants God to bring it to an end. But notice how he ends the psalm, blessed be the Lord, he's still clinging to God by faith. And so listen to me, even when you can't see him at work, from your limited perspective, the Lord is faithful. Even when it seems like he's not or not keeping his end of the bargain, God is faithfully working. Even behind the scenes, God is at work. I mean, one of the uh, clear pictures of this is found in the book of Job, right? I mean, Job lost everything, and he didn't know the backstory about the Lord's conversation with Satan and the Lord allowing Satan to afflict him, and the Lord allowed Satan to afflict him to demonstrate to all of us that you can lose everything and still cling to the Lord, still worship him. And, 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 but Job didn't know all of that. I mean, he's suffering. His perspective is limited. His friends are getting on his nerves, right? And, and, and still he clings to the Lord. So, so listen, even when you don't understand life, even when life doesn't make sense, even when things are confusing, realize that God is still faithfully working his plan. And even in the midst of, of hardship, just like the psalmist says, you can say, blessed be the Lord forever. Just like Job said, blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord is faithful even when you can't see him at work. And, and, and here's how we know this. All right, you ready? The ultimate expression of his faithfulness is the sending of his son. The ultimate expression of his faithfulness is the sending of his son. Look in verse 49. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithless you swore to David? What's the answer to that question? God said to David, I'm going to give you descendants who will rule on the throne of Israel, and, and the reign of your descendants will go on forever. Well, the psalmist here is saying, well, there's no Davidic, Davidic king on the throne. So how in the world does God keep his covenant with David? The answer is Jesus. Turn to Matthew 1 really quickly. Let me show you this. Matthew 1, first chapter in the New Testament, first verse in the New Testament. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So he's tying Jesus into the covenant that God made with David and the covenant God made with uh, Abraham. He's saying, he, he's saying Jesus is the fulfillment of those covenants. Now, let's talk about the covenant with Abraham for a moment. Remember, God appeared to Abraham. He said, I want you to go into this land. So I'm going to give you descendants, even though you and Sarah don't have a son yet. I'm going to give you descendants and, and many descendants like the sand on the seashore. I'm going to build them into a great nation. I'm going to give them land in which to live. I'm, I'm going to build a great nation. And he says, so that through your descendants, all the peoples of the world can be blessed. That's the Abrahamic covenant. How is that fulfilled? It's fulfilled by the son of Abraham, Jesus, who came and went to the cross and died for the sins of the world. So if anyone turns to Christ in repentance and faith, they can be blessed with salvation. They can experience the blessing that God said would come through Abraham's descendants. Does that make sense? 
So God fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant through Jesus. What about the Davidic covenant? Well, Jesus came not only to redeem, he came to reign, right? He came to rule. And guess what? When Jesus died on the cross to defeat sin and then rose from the grave to defeat death, the Bible says he ascended to heaven. He's at the right hand of God. And the Bible says in Ephesians 2, or Ephesians uh, 1, that God has put everything under his feet. The earth is his footstool. In other words, Jesus Christ reigns over all, and his reign will go on and on and on and on. It will never end. And guess what? Jesus comes through the lineage of David. He's one of David's descendants. So that promise to David... One of your descendants will reign forever, was fulfilled in Christ, right? God kept his promise to David. God kept his covenant. He was faithful to do what he said he would do. Even though the psalmist couldn't see all of that. I don't see a king reigning right now, God. It looks like you're not being faithful. God was working, weaving everything together so that one day in the fullness of time, he could send his son, right? Who would fulfill the covenant with Abraham and the covenant with David. So, the ultimate expression of his faithfulness is the sending of his son. He says, Lord, where's your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? The answer is Jesus. Psalmist couldn't see it right then. Jesus hadn't come yet. But we look back with 2020 vision and say, this question was answered by Jesus Christ himself. Amen? That's how God kept his covenant. There are a million more ties between the Davidic covenant and Jesus' New Testament. But, but just for time's sake, you need to understand that God showed his faithfulness through the sending of his son, his, his faithfulness to keep his promise to David. So, what does that mean for us? When you doubt his faithfulness, look to the cross. If you need to be reminded that God is faithful, all you got to do is look to the cross and be reminded that in the cross we see God keeping his covenant with Abraham and David. God doing what he said he would do, providing redemption, blessing for all the peoples of the earth, and a ruling king whose reign would go on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. The cross is where Jesus took all of our sin on himself. The Bible says he became sin for us. The cross is where the wrath of God, the wrath that we deserve was poured out upon Jesus, who took the wrath of God in our place. He died for our sins. And the cross is the demonstration, listen, of the faithfulness of God. So when you doubt his faithfulness, look to the cross. You'll be reminded that God is faithful. He always comes through. And when you doubt his faithfulness, patiently wait for him to come through. Patiently wait for him to come through. Look in verse 50. Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked how I bear in my heart the insults of, of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. And then he ends with that, that cry of faith, Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. How does the psalmist end? Lord, I don't, I don't see how you're going to come through on this one. I don't see how you're going to, to rescue us from the situation. It looks bleak. There's no king on the throne. Babylon has overthrown us, taken us into captivity. It looks bleak. Will your people even survive this? But yet he's waiting patiently. He believes that God will come through. 
because he knew God is faithful. Hey, by the way, isn't it interesting that in the midst of his confusion and perplexity, he's singing? Isn't that interesting? Remember how it starts? I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. He's dealing with a historical situation that was bleak, but he's singing. It reminds me of Paul and Silas in prison. Remember what the Bible says? At the midnight hour, Brother Tim, the midnight hour, they were singing songs. And the other prisoners heard them. They were, they were praising the Lord because why? Even though they were in prison, they knew God was faithful. And they could sing. So when you doubt His faithfulness, patiently wait for Him to come through. Now here's the takeaway, and I'll take some questions and we'll wrap up here in a few minutes. The God who is faithful to keep His covenants in providing a Savior for us is the God we can trust with every area of our lives. The God who is faithful to keep His covenants in providing a Savior for us is the God we can trust with every area of our lives. In other words, if you can trust the faithfulness of God when it comes to your biggest need, which is salvation, forgiveness, you can trust Him with the rest of your needs too. Let me say it like this. If He cares about your greatest need, He cares about your every need. Right? And you can trust Him. Why? He's faithful. He always comes through. He, he, he never, listen to me, on the authority of the Word of God, God has never let you down. Now, I'm not saying that life has not been hard or difficult or confusing or bewildering, but on the authority of the Word of God, God is always at work. And the Bible says He takes everything, even bad things, and weaves them together for our ultimate good. Right? God has never let you down. And they say, you understand everything. But he's never let you down. And so if you can trust him when it comes to salvation and eternal life, your greatest need, you can trust him with every area of your life too. Let me give you an illustration of this from the Bible. Uh, it's found over in uh, Genesis chapter 22, one of my favorite stories. Uh, when I read it and when I really am reading, contemplating, uh, it almost always causes me to to, to tear up and get emotional thinking about that psalm because, or that passage because it's the story of uh, the Lord saying to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, and kill him. Remember that story? God had promised, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a son. And then through your son, I'm going to give him some sons. And, and, and I'm going to give you many descendants. And, and, and I'm going to make him to a great nation. And so God gives him a son. And then God says, kill that son. You think Abraham wasn't scratching his head on that one in agony? And he goes in obedience. He takes him up onto uh, Mount Moriah. And he, uh, he ties him up with, you know, to be the offering. And he lifts his knife. He's going to kill his son. And right before the knife plunges to kill his son Isaac, the Lord says, Stop! Don't kill him! Abraham was testing to see if you would obey me. Even though it meant giving away that which was most precious to you. as a test of Abraham's heart. And Abraham uh, uh, passed the test. He was going to obey the Lord. But the Lord said, don't kill him. That's not my purpose in all of this. And can you imagine the rejoicing of Abraham and Isaac when God stayed Abraham's 
hand. And then, as an illustration of his goodness, uh, the Lord directs Abraham's attention to the thicket. And there's a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And he says, uh, listen, you need to shed some blood here as a reminder that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins, that you have to have shed blood to come into me, to my presence and and as a pointer to what Jesus would do for us. But he says, hey, take that ram and, 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 and sacrifice him so Isaac doesn't have to be sacrificed. And so he takes that ram and the ram is killed so Isaac doesn't have to die. And it's in the context of that story that we see a new name given to the Lord. The name is Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord God provides. And we think about Jehovah Jireh, the Lord God provides. Yeah, he's my provider. I can trust him. But remember the context. God provided a sacrifice so that Isaac didn't have to die. If you can trust God to provide a sacrifice so you don't have to experience his judgment, you can trust God with every area of your life, right? You can trust him. You can trust him. Why? Great is his faithfulness. So I, I love this psalm. It's honest. It's raw. The, the psalmist here is, is struggling. Great is your faithfulness. Great is man's unfaithfulness. And Lord, where is your faithfulness in, in this situation? I mean, I just can't see your hand at work. And yet, blessed be your name. I know you're going to come through. What a beautiful picture of faith in the midst of, of very difficult uh, settings.